We are going to talk this morning about the priority of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, what is it? Well, that depends upon the meaning of the term. If I say to you, the USA, the United States of America, what's the first thing that comes to mind? A place, a people, a way of life, all of the above. But if I say to you, the kingdom of God, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Same thing? Is it primarily a place, a people, a way of life? Uh, This morning, I hope to address two questions. First one is, um, what is the kingdom exactly? And the second, uh, why is it preeminent? Now, Dr. Uh, J. Dwight Pentecost once said that the great theme of God's kingdom program can be found throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. It is a theme that unifies all of Scripture. Another biblical scholar has said that from first to last, Jesus' message underscores the kingdom of God. And yet, as uh, Dr. George Eldon Ladd noted, there are few themes so prominent in the Bible which have received such radically divergent interpretations as that of the kingdom of God. So let's start in Matthew. Now, if I were to ask you, what were the first recorded words of John the Baptist? What would you say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 2. How about one chapter later in Matthew 4, 17? What are the first recorded words of Jesus in Matthew? Same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, a little side note here. Uh, In Matthew, oftentimes you will see uh, the phrase kingdom of heaven, um, although a few times you'll see kingdom of God. And then in the other Gospels and in other epistles, you'll see reference to the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven is a euphemism for the kingdom of God. Uh, Because, of course, you know, Matthew was written to Jews, and out of respect, they had an aversion to saying the name of God, so sometimes they would substitute another term. So it is the same thing, whether you see kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near, maybe your translation says. The kingdom has arrived. Why? Because the king is here. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. How about in Mark 1.15? What are the first recorded words of Jesus there in the Gospel of Mark? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Wait, the Gospel is tied to the kingdom? The kingdom is part of the Gospel? Well, let's take a look at that real quick. Let's flip over to Matthew 4.23. Jesus ministering to the crowds and he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Flip over to chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And one more example over in chapter 24, verse 14. Jesus speaking of uh, the end times and the signs of the end of the age. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And that brings us to a passage I want to camp on for a few minutes, and that's in Matthew 6. You're familiar with this. It's a pretty familiar passage. 
uh, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to start at verse 19. I'm going to read uh, portions of verses 19 to 33. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Get down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, verse 25, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the nations, that is, everyone else, seeks after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So whether from one extreme to the other, whether we're talking about storing up treasures let's say, satisfying wants or just meeting basic needs, uh, all the nations of the world chase after one of these or the other, do they not? And primarily needs. Not you followers of Jesus. That's what he says. Not you. All the nations chase after these things. You know, for some, uh, their needs are met, and so they're consumed with their desires, right? Those who are well off. Up the other extreme, you have those... um, they're just wondering where their next meal is going to come from. But for most people, they're consumed with one or the other of those, and that is their top priority. And Jesus says, no, not for you. Not for you followers of Jesus. I want you to seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. And you know what? Everything else will fall in place, won't it? Now, this, this, uh, let, let's just ask this question. What exactly is he saying here? Seek first the kingdom. That's a very familiar phrase. We've heard that a million times, haven't we? What exactly does that mean, to seek the kingdom? To seek the kingdom. What does that mean exactly? Is he saying, essentially, don't worry about where your next meals come from. Just think about heaven. Is that what he's saying? And here's a question I ask. Why do you suppose it is uh, that, that this is compared with and, and right next to this idea of the kingdom. Why are the needs and the wants uh, right next to this discussion of the kingdom? What's the comparison here? What's the juxtaposition? Why is the discussion of the kingdom uh, right here uh, compared with this idea of of needs and wants? What, what What does juxtaposition mean? It's an act or instance of placing close together or side by side, especially for comparison or contrast. So what's the contrast or comparison Jesus is trying to make here? Well, is it an issue of priority? Some have called this the great priority. You know, you're familiar with the great commandment, to love God and love people above all else, right? And you're familiar with the great commission, right? Go and make disciples everywhere. How about the great priority? Seek first the kingdom. Is this an issue about priority? What do you care about the most? Are you willing to live for something greater than yourself? Is that what he's saying here? You know, if so, then it's kind of important that we understand what the kingdom is, isn't it? 
Now, let's just admit right up front, we're Americans in the 21st century. This idea of a king and kingdom is pretty foreign to us. We haven't had a king in 240 years. We just celebrated our independence from the king about two weeks ago, didn't we? In fact, there's not that many kings left anywhere in the world, are there? So, you know, this is kind of a religious term. It's not a term that we use every day in our modern vernacular, is it? Well, what, what, what is it? Uh, is, is it primarily a place? When you hear the word kingdom of God, we, have a, we, we typically think, well, he must be talking about heaven there. Um, well, or is it a people, a way of life? Is it the state of salvation, the eternal state? Let's think about the name for a minute, the name Jesus Christ. What does Jesus mean? God saves. God saves. How about Christ? Christ. Do you know what Christ means? It's the Greek version of the Hebrew term Messiah, which means what? The anointed, the anointed one. Now, that's a special term. That's a special term for, for kings. And it's not just any king. It's the king, the anointed one, the one and only king. That's what, see, when you hear the word Christ, you should think the one and only king, because that's who he is. Now, when the king, when Jesus first arrived, he did a number of things to set things in motion, didn't he? Let's summarize those briefly. He, um, he, first of all, what he did was he revealed his authority, didn't he? And he did it primarily in two ways, through miracles and teaching, things that no one else had ever done before. He revealed his authority over everything. And also through his teaching, he revealed his authority, who he was. The second main thing he did was he modeled a way of life, a life of righteousness and holiness, of agape, right? The third thing he did was he rescued a people by himself dying for them for their own crimes. Think of that. The king died for his people. Is it too far a stretch for us to say that he is qualified to be Savior because he is first king? Huh. And the last main thing he did was he established his church. And he did say that later, later comes the place, comes heaven, the territory. So the kingdom is multifaceted, and it includes all of these. But first, uh, the term basilia in Greek and malkuth in Hebrew, they both have the same meaning. And they have the primary meaning uh, is the authority and the sovereignty of the king the rule and the reign of the king. Now, let me read you a quote here from uh, Dr. Ladd's book, written about 60 years ago. We must ask the most fundamental question, what is the meaning of kingdom? The modern answer to this question loses the key of meaning to this ancient biblical truth. In our Western idiom, a kingdom is primarily a realm or a place over which a king exercises his authority. The second meaning of a kingdom is the people belonging to a given realm. The exclusive application of either of these two ideas to the biblical teaching of the kingdom leads us astray from a correct understanding of the biblical truth. The primary meaning of both the Hebrew word malkuth, I'm probably butchering that, so I apologize, in the Old Testament and of the Greek word basilia in the New Testament is the rank authority, and sovereignty exercised by a king. A basilia may indeed be a realm over which a sovereign exercises his authority, and it may be the people who belong to that realm and over whom authority is exercised, but these are secondary and derived meanings. First of all, a kingdom 
is the authority to rule the sovereignty of the king. Isn't that good? So, seek first the rule and the reign of the king in your life. Seek first the rule and reign of the king in the lives of people everywhere. You know, at the beginning of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we always skip over the first part of verse 18 that says what? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, I have the power and the ability to delegate my authority to you to advance the kingdom everywhere in the world by making disciples of all the nations everywhere. See, our first ministry priority is to advance the kingdom in the lives of men and women everywhere. See, this is really about discipleship. This is about disciple-making. In fact, this is the basis, the very foundation of discipleship, isn't it? Kingdom of God. Seek it first. Becoming like Jesus in every way, in every part of your life, in your relationship, in your character, in your doctrine, in your ministry, what you do with your time, your life, your money, everything, right? It's about spiritual growth and spiritual multiplication. This is the big job. Folks, this is the great adventure. This is the ultimate purpose. It's the only thing that lasts. It's the only thing that matters. The fact is, at the end of the day, it's the only thing there is. There isn't anything else. Everything else is wiped out. Every other opposing kingdom and empire and country and power is eliminated once and for all, isn't it? Now, Jesus, Jesus attempting to describe the kingdom... Um, Spoke, spoke to some of these issues uh, in Matthew 13. So let's look at that real quick, too. Matthew 13 is a real interesting chapter on the parables. And he said in verse 11 there, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. And he did that through parables. And in verse, uh, in verse 31 and 32, he says, You know, the kingdom is like a mustard seed in the garden. It's the smallest thing there is at first, but over time it is the largest, most dominant thing in the garden. Uh, over in uh, verse 33, he says, you know, the kingdom is like, and he would say that over and over again, you know, the kingdom is like this, the kingdom is like that. He, he would, he'd give various uh, examples. The kingdom's like leaven and flour, meaning it permeates everything. Uh, verse 44, the kingdom is like treasure hidden in a field, and when a man finds it, he sells everything to buy that field. Uh, verse 45 and 46, the kingdom is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. He finds one of great value and sells everything he has just to buy that one pearl. Now, what are the lessons we learn just from those few uh, parables on the secrets of the kingdom? The kingdom of God, though seemingly insignificant at present, is a reality that is destined to dominate the whole world. It's the most valuable thing you can own. When you find that, when you find it, and when you understand what it is, you'll sell everything to get it. It's the only enduring thing in the universe. It is the universe at the end of the day, isn't it? You know, see, today we live in something of an overlap of the ages, do we not? See, the present evil age continues in which God has permitted for reasons beyond me to allow his enemies to dominate governments, peoples, worlds. But it also is a time when the age to come has invaded our world because the king has arrived and he's gone away, but he will come back. So we're not in the time of the fullness of the kingdom. We're in a time of something of an overlap, right? 
He is building His church during the final days of the, of the present evil age. But there will be a time when the king returns and he'll set up his millennial kingdom here on earth, won't he? And then the final stage will be, of course, the eternal state, where the only thing that exists at all is going to be the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of the king and his people, right? In the meantime, though, how shall we live? What shall we do? How does this affect our priorities, our way of life? What do we do with our time, our purpose, our mission in life? You see, at the end of the day, the kingdom of God is preeminent over everything. (laughs) Everything. But the history of the world, right, the past history of the world and what's left of it, is a history of the rise and fall of empires and kingdoms, isn't it? The history of the world is a history of the rise and fall of empires and kingdoms, except one. And there is one that will rise and will never fall long after every other one has fallen. Let's let's do a little tour of history briefly, if we could. If we were to go back into the time of antiquity, the time of the patriarchs and of Moses, where would have been the dominant empire and kingdom of the day? Egypt, right? Egypt ruled most of the world. It was the most powerful empire of the day. Um, We come forward a little bit at the time uh, after Egypt, what was the next great power? And, and again, many of these had a great impact on the nation of Israel in times past. But uh, at the time, the northern kingdom of Israel was uh, deported. Who was the power of the day? It was Assyria, wasn't it? Yeah. Sennacherib and others. <clears throat> King Sennacherib. And then after that, what was the great and dominant power that uh, presided over the uh, exile of the southern kingdom of Israel? Babylon, right? King Nebuchadnezzar and beyond that. So. Uh, Babylon had its day of being the dominant empire in the world. And after that, what was it? Persia, right? Persia, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, and others uh, and, and reigned during the time of the restoration of Israel. And after that, what was the great empire power? Greece, that's right. Alexander the Great and his four generals that followed him. Greece ruled the world at the time, the civilized world at the time, or at least the Western world. <laughs> Uh, and then finally, what was the next great, uh, what was the last great power in antiquity? Rome. Rome ruled for generations and centuries over vast, vast territory, didn't it? If we were to come forward to about the, um, how about the time period between the 15th and the 19th centuries, what would have been the dominant empires and kingdom of the world? Spain, England, France, right? Let's come on forward to the 20th century. What were the, what were the nations, the empires that arose during the 20th century? How about the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, and the United States of America? Not that, we, not that we were born then, but we came to prominence as a world power, right? After World War II, during and after World War II. Now we live in the 21st century. What, is, what would be the dominant empire of our day? China, maybe? Everything was made there. <laughs> They own all our debt, don't they? (laughs) And coming soon, if they have their way, the Muslim caliphate, where all the Muslim countries come together in one vast empire, if they have their way. All these kingdoms come and go and come and go, but one and only one remains, the kingdom of God. There's only one that's eternal. Now, let me illustrate that with a prophecy out of Daniel 2. Let's turn over there. We're going to hit this and one more thing and a major passage before we conclude. Over in Daniel 2, let's, let's, it's the time of the King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And he's disturbed by this dream of this great image, and he doesn't understand what it means, and he's so troubled by it 
but he doesn't want to be uh, he don't want to be faked out by his wise men and his counselors. So he says, not only do you need to tell me what the dream is, I mean, what the what the interpretation is, you're gonna have to tell me what the dream is. And if none of you can do it, I'm gonna kill you all. <laughs> so God reveals this to Daniel, and in starting in verse 31, chapter two, Daniel then explains the dream, tells him what the dream is, and then he explains what it means. You saw, O king, and I'm going to read portions here. I'm going to start in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. I'm going to skip through some of this. Verse 37, you, O king, into verse 38, you are the head of gold, the first kingdom. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. Verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Four great kingdoms are described here, aren't they not? And we're all, you know, commentators agree that they are commonly understood to be the Babylonian Empire. We just discussed it. The Medo-Persian Empire that followed them. The Greek Empire that followed that or conquered Persia. Actually, they existed at the same time, the Persian Empire. And the Roman Empire. And then God will establish his permanent kingdom and crush out all the others. And the kingdom of God is the only one that will remain forever. Now, theologians will debate the precise meaning and the timing of these events. These events. But what I want you to grasp is just one central truth. Just one truth. The kingdom of God is the final reality. It's the eternal empire. It's the preeminent power in the universe. And our God reigns. Amen? And His King, our Savior, reigns. And it really doesn't matter how bad it gets or how bad America gets uh, from our perspective. It doesn't matter how strong or dominant opposing empires become um, in their present fallen or evil state. It really doesn't matter because God wins and our King reigns and Psalm 2 is true. So let me close by reading that. Turn over to Psalm 2 if you want to follow along with me. 
Oh, actually, I have it up here. Oh, I guess I don't. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun or do homage to the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We need to think and to live in light of the kingdom and to live from a kingdom perspective. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you tell us how things end. We're thankful that the king has come and that the king reigns and that he has saved us. He is in the process of building up his people, building his church, and he will return and reign. And you will eliminate all your enemies and everything that causes destruction and death, that brings sin uh, and judgment. Lord, you'll eliminate it once and for all, and there will be glory and peace. And we look forward to that time. And in the meantime, Lord, as we still live here on earth, during this time, during this in-between time, show us how we should live. Show us how we can live and and make the kingdom truly the first priority of our lives. Uh, The rule and the reign of Jesus in our lives, every part of our lives, and in the lives of people everywhere. That we could show the love of God, the grace of God, the sovereignty of God in all things. Watch over us. Go with us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.